You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 198. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcasts. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find the show notes, examples, discussion, other stuff, rants, ramblings, whatever. Yes, indeed. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And you can follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. And hey, uh, we got a website. Uh, codingbox.net and there's links at the top of the page go to uh, other websites that we curate or I don't know <laughs> contribute to I guess I don't know yeah uh, yeah hey, uh, I'm Joe Zach by the way I'm Michael Outlaw and I am Alan Underwood and so, you know what they say about cliffhangers <laughs> so what's the topic for this evening what do they say about cliffhangers <laughs> So anxiety has built up. So for this episode, we didn't have any new reviews since uh, last episode. So, you know, we'll have to like, I guess, beg. Maybe Jay-Z needs to do the beg. Got it. Are are you this getting to you yet, Alan? Do do we we beg right now? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, sure. Let's do the awkward part up front. Let's do it. No, I meant meant the fact that like... (laughs) Alan asked and I just like walked away from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you yeah, not so get confused. that that was the cliffhanger? <laughs> I got it. I got it. Hey, did, um, a lousy limbo player walked into a bar. They did. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes. yeah. <laughs> you, you got the punchline right in the thing. I did. It was yeah. good, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's thanks to my son. That one got me the other day. I giggled a little bit. Nice, um, nice. Yeah. All right. So, so for the topic of this particular show, we're going to be talking about this thing that you might have heard of called Twitter. Um, not the craziness going on on the interwebs and with the company and all that kind of stuff, more about the technical challenges that they've faced as they've grown over their, what, 18 years now, 19, something like that. So we're going to do that. But first, we got a little bit of news. So, Outlaw, you want to read us the review names? I already did that part. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, I didn't like it. Oh, you didn't like it? Okay, well, hold on. Like Let me read it again. <laughs> All right. Jay-Z, you got something up here? Uh, yeah. Hey, Game Jam. It's officially time to start talking about it. So, uh, yeah, I am super pumped about that. I uh, love doing it every year. It's going to be year number three. It's going to be uh, better than ever. We are officially soliciting, solici- solicitating, I think is the word. No, soliciting. Uh, I think that's... <laughs> Ah, feeling goofy tonight. Uh, soliciting uh, theme ideas. So you got an idea? Uh, shoot, uh, email, text, tweet, whatever, and I'll get on the list, and uh, we'll start the voting soon. It's just a lot of fun. Now, how come? How come? As a member of this three-party show, like I didn't know that there was an official time that we'd start talking about game January. Like, uh, yeah, uh, probably because I don't share my notes. I should. What well, <laughs> makes I, it I official? That's because this is around when we talked about it last year. Okay. Yeah. So I actually have a little timeline. I have a little thing that's like three months out, we do this. Two months out, we do this. This is when the emails go out. And you guys are hyper organized. I have to be. Otherwise, I can't get anything done. <laughs> There's no in between. That's probably okay. true. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, that sounds like me too, let me go ahead and tell you right now. Make yourself a note. Leave us a review. Because that's why you forgot to do it already. That's yep. that's true. That's got to be technically true. <laughs> yeah, you don't yeah. have to do it now. Just put it on the list. Yeah, put it on the list. Yeah, you'll get um, to it. Hey, so one last little thing here. I found this today. I came across this today. And 
you know, there, there are people that think that we, we know everything about what we do because we've, we're 198 episodes and talking about coding, right? Man. So I've been dealing with a, a particular problem that is driving me absolutely up a wall, right? Like basically I have a file that was encoded some way and it went through some sort of um, encoding, decoding somewhere and trying to get that thing back to its original state is driving me absolutely crazy. Man, I learned stuff in this one article that was written 19 years ago from Joel on software. You probably heard of him. Um, but the title of this, this article is the absolute minimum. Every software developer absolutely positively must know about Unicode and character sets and character sets. No excuses. No excuses. If, if you know all this stuff about UTF-8, UTF-7, if you didn't know that was a thing, then you should read this. Um, ASCII, ANSI, uh, ISO, whatever the other ones are. If you don't know this stuff, go read this article. It will absolutely do you a huge favor. I learned so many things today reading this article that I just never knew about. Like I didn't know that when you do UTF-8, um, it can zero pad lead the characters or you can leave them off. I didn't know that. And that matters because if you encode something to UTF-8, those leading zeros might be there. They might be not. But now trying to re go back to where you started from can be an absolute nightmare because those characters may or may not be there. So it's a, it's really an interesting read and you will learn so much about why this stuff even exists. So definitely um, after you're done listening to this on your drive or whatever, go to the show notes, codingblocks.net slash episode 198 and find this link for the Joel on software and read this. It, it will absolutely do awesome things for you. Just understanding how this stuff works. And it's very timely too, because I mean, this article was written <laughs> oh, you said years 19 ago. years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's been I a take bit. that back. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's been a minute. Oh. <laughs> We're allowed to forget stuff. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, man. We'll look it up. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. So, yeah, um, good stuff. Really good stuff there. Um, so, I guess with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. So, we'll have some links in the resources for this. The very so if you don't know this exists, we've talked about various different um engineering blogs. Engineering blogs out there. Like I know in the past outline I've talked about like the Uber one. We truly love that and all the stuff that they put out into the world. We've talked about Netflix with Chaos Monkey and all the other things they've added. Twitter also has a fantastic engineering blog. And I believe is it just blog.twitter.com? I can't even remember. Blog.twitter.com. Yep. Yeah. So if you don't know that exists and you do a lot with big data, especially this is a fantastic set of read throughs to where you can learn from people that arguably have the most scale problems besides Facebook on the planet. So um, definitely go check that out. But we're going to hit on one here called scaling data access by moving an exabyte of data to Google cloud. Now, here's the thing that I want to lead up with. I started with this link and the problem is 
you have to kind of understand some of the history of where they've been and all that before you can even get to this article. So even though I started here, almost everything that we're going to talk about in this episode has nothing to do with this particular article. It's what we'll be talking about today is, is an article they linked to at the very top that talked about what they did to improve their scaling and ability to be able to look at um, data analysis within the company. So, so how much, just a heads up. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, just finish your thought. Just a heads up. So we'll probably be coming back to this other one after this episode and talk a little bit more about things that have changed since, since we go over what we're talking about in this one. And in this one, you said they were moving how much data again? Um, an exabyte. So of data. yeah, but how much data? Cause you had to solve for exa, right? So what was exa? <laughs> it, it, it took a second. It took a second. <laughs> you thought I had something serious to say? I, I did. I did. <laughs> you, you, total, you totally got me. Uh, so, so I, I don't know if you guys read this stuff because I, I literally just went and picked out one of the blog posts and started going through it. Um, so we'll just chat about this thing as we go. So, we I will now, not lie to you. I did not. I did not know that we were going to go with this. I did not read this one. Okay. Okay. I didn't either. Okay. Cool. All right. So. So, so we'll, we'll chat about this stuff. Yes, we'll chat about this as we go. Um, so in 2019, we're at the tail end of 2022 now, right? So we've had three more years since this. I can only imagine that things have gotten even bigger. So just keep in mind, this was three years ago. But so it was 20- written it, this year, though. The article was written this year. The article was written this year, but he's actually talking about the numbers from 2019 oh, directly. Okay. So he didn't mention what the new numbers are. But they said in 2019, over 100 million people per day would visit Twitter feeds, right? Now, they didn't say whether it was from a website or from an app or whatever, but just imagine 100 million people dialing in to that, to that, um, what do they call it? The fire hose or whatever to, to where they're getting data out. That's a whole lot. If you recall too, just to like back up for a moment during as part of the, I think we talked about this as part of the designing data intensive applications architecture, right? Where some of the problems that Twitter has in terms, in terms of putting together a, a timeline when you would go to Twitter right? Like Jay-Z, you might be able to speak to this better than I can, but there was issues of like, if, if I updated my feed, then Twitter had like one strategy for how they would, you know, put my message out there on Alan or Jay-Z's feed. But if, uh, you know, the other Jay-Z who might have a couple more followers put something out, like it was, it was a different uh, strategy for how, like, instead of blasting it out to uh, everyone's queue, it would be a, on read uh, or as needed kind of read, right? Something like that. Am I saying this right, Jay-Z? Yeah. So if you think like, you know, if you were to kind of design Twitter from scratch, you know, and just not really think about the problems that they've run into or what you know about in terms of scale, you'd probably kind of design it like a content management system or a blog or something like that, where you would say, okay, I'm a user. I go to the page and I go and I fetch some stuff out of the database and I show it to you, right? Not hard. It's just kind of standard like web development stuff. But Twitter has the celebrity problem where uh, they actually have a, a whole blog just on Taylor Swift. She released a new album that, you know, is doing so, like phenomenally well. Oh, and I heard. Yeah, it's Midnight. It's really good. <laughs> so you should check it out. <laughs> I do. I do. I was just I'm kidding. Swifty. Of course, everyone's heard. Hashtag Swifty. Uh, yeah. 
but uh so let's see uh they actually have some numbers on it but uh well, I'll, anyway, I'll, 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 I didn't really uh, get those numbers together. But, uh, yeah, so Taylor Swift put out a new album. Everyone's talking about it. So many people uh, follow her. So whenever she makes a tweet, that's a lot of people that need to, to get that stuff. So Twitter does this kind of came up with a strategy they call fan out, where basically when Taylor Swift uh, tweets, they actually run out and go and update a bunch of feeds so that rather than going and kind of um, trying to couple together these uh, – these feeds from a database or something like they're the feeds are pre-generated so you can have a uh, quick real-time uh home home timelines and uh, that's part of twitter's mission is to get you data really quickly they want you to have like low latency you know up to the minute uh data so that your you know feed if you uh, both follow taylor swift we want to see those tweets come in around the same time and they want to keep a conversation flowing they want to keep it fast so so i bring that up because uh, just to kind of like frame the t- the conversation here, right? That we're talking about, like you know, you said a hundred million people per day, but those hundred million people aren't. It's not the same problem that's being solved for for each of those people as they view or post to Twitter, right? Totally. So it's more that, about that's the background follow. of this of this, uh, you know, the 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 domain of the problem. Well, so that's the domain of the overall problem. What we're going to be talking about more is what they tried to do for their internal customers, uh, the people in marketing and accounting and all that kind of stuff on how they could see um, trends and analytics of what's happening with with the various different tweets and stuff out there. So, so check this out. For every tweet and user action that somebody does, whether you like something or, or quote something or whatever <clears> – <throat> It creates an event. So very similar to like the Kafka stuff that we've talked about in the past, right? You generate an event and then that's used by machine learning and it's used by employees for analytics. So every single thing that's done generates some sort of event that happens. that goes out into their, their data pools. Um, and one of the things that they ran into is they wanted to make it. And they actually said they wanted to democratize data analysis to the people within Twitter so that they could go and query things the way that makes sense for them, right? Like your marketing team is going to care about things differently than maybe a, a customer retention team does or an engineering team or whatever, right? Like everybody has a slice or a view of the data they want to see, and they wanted to make it to where they could easily go do it without getting engineering involved. So this is kind of similar. I think we talked about it like as it relates to the Uber right? Uber was doing something kind of similar to that where they were, you know, you'd have like the one big data lake, but then they didn't mind having these smaller, uh, database offshoots from that where like, you know, one, one team might want like accounts receivable or billing or whatever might need a different set of data. than uh, um, Uber eats might want a different set of data related to like go market for that kind of thing. Right. Versus the real time stuff. So, so that's the kind of stuff you're talking about in relation to uh, democratizing the data so that the different parts of Twitter could use it differently. Right. Very much. Yeah. It, so really what they talk about here is they kind of do have this big data lake. Um, they don't use that term as much in, in the article, but they basically said that they had various different technologies that were used for data analysis. They had scalding, which I'd never heard of before. Um, but if you wanted to use that, it required programming knowledge. Um, 
then they said another problem was having data spread across multiple systems without a simple way to access it, which is similar to what Uber was talking about, right? Like they were trying to get data into one big area so that everybody could access it. Um, so what they were talking about to start off this particular thing was, Hey, they want to move things into Google cloud, um, particularly because they wanted to use BigQuery. because if you're not familiar with BigQuery, I actually copied their, their kind of simple summary on their own page it says it's a cost effective serverless multi-cloud enterprise data warehouse to power your data driven innovation. So if you're not familiar with the big query, kind of basically what you do is you ingest data into this thing. Um, and they've already got, you know, basically massively scalable storage behind the scenes. So as you ingest data into it, it indexes it into its own format that it knows behind the scenes, if I remember correctly. And then it allows you to use regular SQL queries to process inspect like, you know, terabytes, petabytes of data. So you could do all that with BigQuery without having to worry about infrastructure and all that other kind of stuff, right? So that's what they were trying to move to. And then another thing that I had never even heard of until I started reading this article, and I'm curious if you guys had, was this thing called Data Studio. So if you hit that link, that um actually, so not the link that's there, if you go to datastudio.google.com, you'll be on a page where you can automatically start trying to create reports based off data that you've already got. So data studio looks to be available to everybody. I don't know what you get charged for it or if you get charged anything. Wait, this is just using going against my Google drive. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You can actually point it at other data sources and stuff. So, um, it's pretty interesting. I'd never heard of it, but they are using data studio in conjunction with BigQuery so that BigQuery has the data they want. They can run SQL queries out of that thing and then use data studio to create visualizations, reports, tell stories with the data that they already have and processed in BigQuery. So Google man, like what the heck? Right. I mean, it's actually really cool. And if you look, they've got like, they've got sample data sets here. They've got one that's, um, what did I just click on a world population? Um, right now there's 7.1 billion people in the world. No, we crossed eight. It was announced this week. It was announced this week that the, that they believe that we have crossed 8 billion people now on the planet. That's, that's absolutely crazy. Oh, this says as of 2013. So I guess they populated this with old data. Um, and maybe it's not even real, but, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is really interesting. Like I said, I didn't even know it existed. Like they, they have so many things in the Google, um, ecosphere that it's just, it's almost impossible to know them all. So, at any rate, with that, <clears throat> what they were basically trying to do is make it so it'd be easier for managers, um, people that just know general SQL or, or maybe some developers or whatever to be able to access this data and, and make it show what they needed to look at. They just want to be able to slice and dice data, like generate like a chart. They want to be able to drive exactly. a chart or well, something off of it, right? So charts, yeah, but uh, one of my favorite things about uh, Twitter is trending. So you can sign on Twitter and, and say, hey, what's trending now? And it shows, shows, shows you, like, here's the things that you're interested in that's trending. So maybe I'll see stuff about, like, music or whatever. Uh, you can go to the general news. It's just, like, entertainment. They kind of break it down by categories. So, like, you know, for example, Taylor Swift puts an album out. It's probably going to be under news. It'll be under entertainment. It's going to be under my interests. Uh, but it's not going to be under sports. 
And uh, they've got a whole big data wing that's always kind of working on figuring out what that is. And if you think about it, like how crazy is it they can go and see uh, they kind of boil down all the tweets of the day and say, hey, election is trending. Or they take all that noise, all that mess, all that stuff that people are talking about and say, hey, uh, Taylor Swift's new album Midnight's came out or, hey, you know, Super Bowl or whatever. They take the crazy stuff that people tweet, 140 characters, and they figure out the subject. They figure out how to count it and they do a great job of it. Well, now yeah. it's more than 140, right? I was going to say it's a little bit more than that now, but yeah, but still, yeah, it, it's absolutely Your insane. whole point is can, lost on me because you got the number yeah, wrong. Gone. Right. When, when you consider yeah. how many tweets go out in a minute across the world, the fact that they're, they're able to do that stuff with the trends is absolutely amazing. Um, so this is where we need to take a step back into history. So they actually lay out what, what they had, what their strategies were starting back in 2011. So this is actually the history of data warehousing at Twitter. 2011, they did data analysis with Vertica and they were using Hadoop for their storage. Um, data was ingested using pig. And if you know anything about Hadoop and the way that stuff had to come in, you had to use a MapReduce process and pig sort of makes that easier for ingesting data. So 2012, they went away from pig and they picked up scalding. And what they actually said in the article is it uses Scala APIs, Scala, Scala, don't know, uh, that were geared towards creating complex pipelines that you could, it said it was sort of easy to create these complex pipelines and it was also easy to test. So that, that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I, I know the three of us have been in the, uh, in the real time streaming data world and it's not easy sometimes, right? No, and hey, I got a little tip for you. Uh, don't try Googling scalding versus pig. Really? Don't do it. Yeah, apparently. Uh, It'll be yeah, a scalding but, pig. Yeah, like I didn't know that was the thing. It's a, it's a whole big thing. <laughs> I think we need you to get, have like some kind of a, a banner for like when you're going to announce something crazy like that, Jay-Z, like there should be like instead of a spoiler, there should be like a, you know, gross step, warning coming. Step, yeah, you know? don't do this. Yeah, I, I whoa, what's going on? What are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so one of the, one of the problems with scalding though, is it's difficult for people that just have like general SQL skills to pick up. Like they said that the learning curve is, is pretty extreme on that. Um, so fast forward four years from 2012 to 2016, they start using Presto, Presto DB to access Hadoop data using SQL. Now we've talked about Presto on here and we'll get into some interesting things a little bit further into the notes here about that. Um, but if if you haven't heard the past episodes, Presto kind of allows you to pick any number of various different storage technologies. In this case, it was Hadoop, right, that they're using here. Um, you can use it to pipe into JDBC databases. You can use it to pipe into GCS or Google Storage, AWS S3 storage, all kinds of stuff. So um, is Scalding, like this was made by Twitter, it looks like. Oh, really? Am I wrong? I'm looking. Hold yeah, Twitter open source. Sure enough. Okay. Interest. So, okay. you know, for those who are working at Twitter, they're like, of course we already know about scalding. But, you right. know, for the rest of us, they're like, oh. Yeah, huh. brand new stuff. And it's open sourced. So if you want yeah, to use it. I'm looking at it on yeah. GitHub. That's why. Yeah, and same. it came up as like a, a Twitter GitHub account. And I'm like, wait a minute. My spidey sense is tingling. Right. <laughs> they have a really cool... um cool icon logo for it it's an elephant blowing flames out its trunk so because well, it's hadoop right 
Isn't ah, the Hadoop right. logo the an elephant? It is. It is. Yes. So along with using Presto to access Hadoop data using SQL, they were also using Spark for ad hoc data science and machine learning. Uh, so now, two years later, 2018, they're using Scalding for their production pipeline. So, you know, transforming data, pushing stuff around. And they're using Scalding in conjunction with Spark for ad hoc data science and machine learning. So not a ton change there. What did is they now have Vertica and Presto for ad hoc interactive SQL analysis. And they introduced Druid for interactive exploratory access to time series data. Okay. There's so many technologies. So yeah. Presto, if I remember right, was the one where there was like a Facebook derivative. One was called Presto and one was called Presto DB, right? So you have no two. Presto DB was the original one. Presto SQL was the one that somebody forked that that was super confusing because you'd go search for something for Presto and sometimes you'd land on Presto SQL and sometimes you'd land on Presto DB. But yes, that was the one that was created by Facebook. Yes, Facebook to query basically just about any storage technology. Well, I say just about any. Uh, a lot of storage technologies out there using SQL language. But what Are was you super sure co- it wasn't like Presto and Presto DB? Because like I'm Googling and I'm seeing like literally Presto was developed by Facebook, but there's a Presto DB.io. I think that just, I don't think Presto it was Presto, Presto SQL, SQL, was it? Yeah. It really was Presto SQL? Is what it yeah. was and then there's called. Trino, which is like a newer kind of evolution. Yeah. It's been a minute since I looked at all this stuff. Yeah, oh, wait. Presto now Space I see it on DB. the Wikipedia page. It does say Presto, including Presto DB and Presto SQL, which, is being, which has been rebranded to Trino. Okay. So that's what they did because the, people were probably getting annoyed just like I was back in the day when I was dealing with it. Well, yeah. Cause I remember like we were looking at that for some reason and I don't remember if like this was maybe a follow up from like, you know, or like a fallout from like us looking at one of the Uber engineering blogs or something. Maybe that's how we got turned on to Presto. I, I don't remember now it's been so long, but like when you said it, I had kind of had like a little, Oh God, a little, <laughs> Little PTSD kicked in there, and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> and, and really, all it was is the Presto sequel. They just forked Presto DB and then started going off and doing development in their own direction, which I guess is now Trino. Trino. Um, so, but the cool part about Presto, if if you haven't heard it before, is like I said, it'll allow you to query basically kind of any data source out there, and that's cool. But the actual magic that made it what it is is you can join data across disparate data sources, right? So, yes. so if, you an, ha- okay. if you have data stored up in GCS and then you have some lookup data stored in a Postgres database, you can basically say, hey, select um, everything from my GCS data source and join it on my lookup information from Postgres SQL. And it will do it in a distributed manner to where to pull the data into its own processing nodes and join the data there and then give you back the data set. So you could basically write a SQL join against anything just about that you can connect to. Yeah. And, and so there was also another one that Jay-Z and I remember we looked at it. We did it uh, as part of like, a, a you know, come watch us stumble uh, live stream. Uh, I mean, no, learn with us. I think it's what we call it. I don't remember but we definitely stumbled, but it was on Apache drill. Right. Yep. So it was a similar kind of thing where like 
you know, with, with these technologies, you could, it could, it didn't even have to be a database. It could be like, I have a CSV over here. I have an Excel spreadsheet over here. I have a SQL server database over there, an Oracle database, a pres, uh, uh, you know, the GCS bucket, whatever these different data sources were, you could like set up these connectors to it and then magically query it. And, and I remember drill was pretty good about like determining the types too. Like it would, mm-hmm. it would figure out the data types and be like, nah, we got this. We know yeah. what the quote schema should be for this thing that isn't really a table. Yeah. I remember you and I outlaw were playing with drill quite a bit. And, yeah. and honestly, it seemed like it was a little bit more impressive from that discovery phase that you're talking about than than Presto was, but it just didn't have the, I guess the Facebook backing or Twitter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it didn't have the same mind share, but yeah, I mean, an amazing, amazing tool and it's still used by a lot of stuff out of there, out there. Um, So Druid, if you've not heard of Druid, if you're trying to analyze time series data, that is a super powerful analytics platform. Um, I thought Druid was an OLAP database. It is. It's OLAP for time series data. Oh, OLAP specifically for time series. Yes. I didn't know about the time series aspect. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't either. When you look at the ingestion on a lot of that stuff, you actually have to do it on a time series type basis. Now, there may be hacks around it, but that's what it was designed for. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of competing technologies out there now, like Pino, um, round not Roundhouse. What's the uh, Clicky House, ClickHouse, something like that. Well, Pino um, so, would just be another like OLAP database, right? But it's not specific to time series because, like, when we talk about like a time series database, like you know the one that's in our face these days would be Prometheus. Prometheus, yeah. right? Like, I'm going to think of something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was originally done. Like I said, you they do allow for tons and tons of dimensions, but it usually ha- it usually has to be sliced up by time. Um so on top of that, they also used Tableau, which if you haven't heard of that, it's a very popular commercial li- uh piece of software out there that allows you to connect things and query them and, and visualize like dashboards. Yep, dashboards, Zeppelin and then Pivot for data visualization. So um, I've never used Zeppelin or Pivot, so I don't know what those are like. <clears throat> so I listen to Zeppelin. I mean, it's been a while. I mean, <laughs> they got some cool. It's, you know, they're not new, but yeah, it's I don't know if they're still touring. I think they were going to, but Taylor Swift kicked them off the platform <laughs> to buy tickets. She was trending. Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, Taylor. Speaking of uh, Taylor Swift, I'm glad you mentioned her. Oh, uh, do you, in the last ten years, you know, she's averaged more than seventy five thousand tweets a day. Just about. Sorry, about what? Taylor Swift. I was going to say, how oh, did she about? have the time? Yeah, I was like, you know, whoa, no. wait, what bot did she program? <laughs> well, I, was yeah. like, I was like, wait a minute, she puts out seventy five thousand tweets a day and does all these amazing albums. So, so like, wait. Yeah. I'm in there. I'm like not productive enough if I'm not accomplishing what she's accomplishing. Then wait, you just said for the past 10 years, she averages 75,000 tweets a day, 365 days a year about her, about her, about her. That's uh, a total of 329 million tweets. Now that doesn't count the 4 million tweets that she got in 24 hours uh, when her album midnights was released. Golly, man. Yeah. And uh, Twitter got a blog post out the next day with analytics about the tweets and like how people were, uh, you know, what they were tweeting about, the top three songs that people were tweeting about in reference to the album. Like, all right. It's uh, pretty amazing stuff. Hear me out. Hear me out. You're about, you're about to brag about our stats, aren't you? <laughs> Hear me out. 
This is our challenge, dear listener. We want to overtake Taylor Swift on Twitter. So get on Twitter, social, you know, like send your tweet, mention us. We hashtag coding blocks or at coding blocks, whatever, whatever suits your fancy. Either way, it's going to like Twitter will, you know, rank it all in the same. They'll, they'll figure that out. They'll know that it means the same thing. Uh, and, and let's see if we can't, if we can't take the top spot. I think we got it. I think we, I think we can do this. I believe in us. I believe in you. And I believe in us. We can, we can make this happen. We're going to get ones of tweets. Is that how you say that? <laughs> ones? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, so it's uh, Taylor has, the, she has a big advantage because music is actually the largest community on Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. That's pretty 441 million unique followers. And like, I, I don't, I'm not really clear on what they're, uh, what they consider their communities, but I think it has to do with basically interests that they figure out about you. Like, for example, I mentioned that they somehow figured out the kinds of music that I like and they have like put me in these kind of these various communities about that. And so sometimes they kind of like throw me tweets that I, they think I'm going to be interested in. Oh, that's pretty cool. All right. Well, now that we've been stomped into oblivion, um, with our ones of tweets, uh, tens, Alan, tens. tens. We might get tens. That'd be exciting if it happened. Um, so another thing about Taylor actually is, uh, this, I'm kidding. Oh, you just trying to crush our souls now. <laughs> Jay-Z's just going to hit us up with Taylor Swift facts on, uh, all <laughs> night. Like, so many, that's so a Taylor many. Swift comment or, you know, fact. That's right. Oh man. All right. So, so they were already doing all this stuff, right? Like they, they had data flowing. They had all these ways to get reports, Tableau, Zeppelin, Pivot, all that kind of stuff. So why the change? Well, their big thing is they wanted to simplify their analytical tools for their internal employees. That's really what it boiled down to. So that's where BigQuery came in. Um, now, they did say there were challenges. And, I mean, I, the three of us have worked on – three different cloud platforms at this point, right? Azure, AWS, and GCP. And I well, guess professionally, even more. not including like professional for work, you know, for yeah, like was, play. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you could even count in Linode and, and DigitalOcean and some other stuff, right? Which I don't guess they're quite the same, but, but there's always challenges, right? Like every page that you go to on, on a uh, cloud sites, like use this service. It's so easy. And you get in there, you're like, man, there's nothing easy about this. I don't know why. It seems like it should be so easy, but it never did. So yeah. they had challenges. Starting with, I can't even differentiate your icon from all the other services you have. <laughs> AWS. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't trying to call anyone out. This is awkward now. We had a whole episode about oh, it, yeah, or at least did. a big chunk of an episode about it. Um, so one of the things that they had to do is they had to develop their own infrastructure to reliably ingest data, large amounts of data into BigQuery. Um, so that's worth calling out. Twitter did basically everything on-prem. They didn't do cloud computing stuff, not massively, right? Um, and that's similar to Stack Overflow. We've talked about this in the past. Like Stack Overflow even had a page up that showed their the gist of their overall infrastructure and how things worked. And the reason they said is, they spend as much on their entire infrastructure as what one month would cost them if they ran it in the cloud, right? And I have to imagine that's the same exact reason why Twitter does everything on-prem and then has started porting things to the cloud that makes sense to make their lives easier, right? So just wanted to call that out. Man, talk about another one I just found. I was trying to find 
the specific link that you were talking, you were referring to yeah. where like a stack overflow would show like, Hey, this is our SQL server. You know, there's a Redis cache in front of it, things like that. Ooh. Stack overflow also has a blog for all of their fun engineering challenges. Oh, that's excellent. Stack overflow.blog slash engineering. Most excellent. Yeah. We'll have to dig into that one too. Um, so while he's looking for that other link, um, some of the other things they had to worry about, they had to support company wide data management. They needed to implement access controls, which, uh, I think you would, I would hope you know why, right? Like you don't want me accessing private user data somewhere. Um, or tweeting on behalf of people or being able to see direct messages or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, totally. Um, ensuring the customer privacy, um, they needed to build sources uh, or build systems for resource allocation, monitoring, chargeback. So uh, if if you work for a large corporation, you're probably aware of how this works, right? Like, Let's say that you are in AWS or GCP. Usually departments get charged for the things that they're using, right? Like it's not the company as a whole because they want to find out, Hey, is engineering blowing out the budget or is it accounting over here? That's that's using so many of these resources that are costing us money. So they actually charge it back to the various different areas. So they had to build those systems to get that stuff in place. So in 2018, um, after when we mentioned the Tableau Zeppelin, all that kind of stuff in 2018, they rolled out their alpha release of this GCP infrastructure, the big query um, data studio, all that kind of stuff. And what they did, and it's kind of interesting. This is actually a really good way to approach things just from, just from a, a product management software development mindset. They basically put out the most frequently used tables that that people would be interested in. So they didn't try and put everything online at once, right? They said, hey, this is what I know that most of our internal customers are going to use, and they went with that. Um, in that group, they had over 250 users internal in the company um, from engineering, finance, marketing. And sometime, they, they didn't have the date in here, but they said that um, they said it was near the time that they wrote the or that blog post was live. They had a month where they had 8,000 queries that processed over a hundred petabytes of data, not including scheduled reports. So these were ad hoc queries that were run. And so people ended up loving it, right? Like they saw that the people were using it, 8,000 queries with over a hundred petabytes of data process. Like that's a lot of usage. And so with that, they proved out that people did want to use the platform. And so from that point, they decided, hey, okay, let's push forward with this. 8,000 queries, though, in total, I mean, like, that sounds low, right? For well, not those are 250 users. Yeah, oh, this is not okay. like customer facing, right? This is like right. people actually like running queries at work, you know? Okay. Right. This okay. is maybe trying to find out the trends or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So God, I'm such a jerk. that's pretty good so check this out they also i have a link in the uh, in the show notes for this but they have a really nice diagram a very simple diagram of kind of what the data flow was getting from their on-prem into bigquery and and i'll summarize it here but i highly recommend going and taking a look at the picture because it'll give you a little bit more detail so basically what they did is they pushed data into gcs so google cloud storage if you didn't know that that particular acronym from their on-premise Hadoop data clusters 
And once they pushed it up to GCS, they then used Airflow. Um, I think it's Apache Airflow, if I remember right, to move the dat- that data from GCS into BigQuery. And then once it was in BigQuery, that's where they would use Data Studio so that all the end users could actually go create reports that they'd want to look at, right? Like things that they'd, they'd want to pull up later. What the heck does Apache Airflow do? Airflow is a platform created by the community to program it. Yeah, some word that allows you to author, schedule, and monitor workflows. What? It's amazing. Apache has so many projects around both OLAP and just like streaming type DAG stuff. Uh, distribute uh, like a cyclic graph server, directional, a cyclic, I don't know. It's Python. Like it's Python based. It, mm. It's it's really popular in in GCP. Open source workflow management platform for data engineering pipelines. Um, anyone we'll, with Python we'll, knowledge can develop a workflow. Airflow does not limit the scope of your pipelines. You can use it to build machine learning models, transfer data, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I'm sure that was hyper complex, right? But that's why I said that the diagrams worth looking at just to see sort of the gist of what they were doing. And I'm sure there was a ton of work that happened to make all this, you know, really, really go live. I found that, um, link by the way, for the, uh, stack overflow, uh, infrastructure, there's still mm. it like, not on like a cloud-based solution. Nine web servers, four SQL servers, two Redis servers. Uh, but, I mean, with that, they're putting out 55 terabytes of data a month. I mean, you know, I'm sure Twitter would be like, whatever. Right. Our 240 characters is way more than that. But, um, I mean, it's still super impressive what Stack Overflow is doing um, without it's it. Amazing. So the point is, is like, I'll have a link in the, in the resources we like, there'll be a, a link for uh, the Stack Overflow one. And the language they use? Oh, that the, the, their stuff's written in? Stack you Overflow? Mean? Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you trying to pick on my boy C-Sharp? No, I'm actually excited about it. Oh. I love seeing oh. that. Yeah. No, C-Sharp, ASP.NET, NBC, and their homepage loads in 12.2 milliseconds, and their questions pages load in 18.3 milliseconds. That's amazing. Oh, all right. So uh, I think it's uh, Jay Z's turn. Oh God, <laughs> Jay Z. All right. Tell you what, uh, I'll give you a discount if you give us a four star review. We're gonna treat it like a five. <laughs> Why? We'll give you the full Why? value. We'll give you the the full five star. Thank you for four star and up recommendations because we love it. It helps us out. And uh, yeah, it's really good good news for the show. That's how podcasts grow. It keeps us going. It's just, it's the um, I don't know steam in our turbines or however cars work. I don't know. Listen, I'm telling you guys, if you all go out to Twitter and you tweet about coding blocks, I'm sure that we'll get that many more listeners and subscribers, and we can grow the show, and it'll be better. And so I think that's how it works, right? Am I so, doing this right? I think yeah. so. I think I got it. I think the quality has increased with every person, every new person that's listened to the show. Yeah. Right. That's definitely happened. Yeah, um, totally. And, and when we used to all record in person, I could have reached over and hit the mute button on Jay-Z's mic before he said that nonsense, but, but I can't virtually do that. So Yeah. So now we have to deal with this. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I know when I go look at a podcast and, uh, you know, I'm looking for something new to listen to that, you know, as long as it's four stars and up, you know, it's good. So no, that, that's all we're asking of you. No, no. <laughs> all of us are asking four star review. <laughs> the five. <laughs> you know, you were talking about the, the Taylor Swift facts uh, and, you know, going, going, listening to her music and all that. So I went to a, a Foo Fighters concert recently. And it was ever long. <laughs> so long. Very good. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So uh, let's play a little bit of feud here. This is what? Episode 198. So Jay-Z, guess what? You get the right. first this time. So uh, let me see. I made some notes for myself. And we asked 100 people. Name qualities of a bad boss. And you just name just name one. We'll okay. see who gets uh I mean okay. Dude, this is tough. This is a hard one. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. uh I mean micromanaging is the only thing I can think of. I just keep coming back to that. Okay. Mean. That's the I was thinking that too. Okay, so micromanager was the number one answer with twenty nine respondents. So that's twenty nine points on the board for Joe Allen. Angry was the number three answer at twenty. I'll take it. I'll take it. That's not so terrible. That's not yeah. a bad showing. That's that's not a bad showing. What was number two? Uh, okay, we'll run down the list. Micromanager, incompetent, number two with 24. Okay. Irresponsible, 14, and oblivious, number 13. Okay. okay. Or, I'm sorry, 13 uh, respondents. All right. So, <clears throat> my next question for you, and Alan, you'll go first this time. All right. Name a bad job for someone who's afraid of heights. Yeah, like how you put your answer. You like that? Yeah. <laughs> you already put your score in. That's cheating. Yeah, yeah. You didn't get oh, that. A pilot. A pilot. Oh, good answer. Dang. Uh, I'm trying to think what the um, the electricians, you know, for the power company. I, I don't know what you call them. Um, oh, like uh, they're called pole climbers. Is it linemen or something? Linemen. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Pilot was the number two answer with 37 respondents. Hey, I was close on my number. Yeah. I'll I'll consider lineman as construction worker. I think that's fair. Yeah. Number three answer, 16 points. All right. Takes a lead. Yeah. This is getting interesting here. I got to like use a formula now. Like start. (laughs) We're getting into big numbers. Let's see. Put that there. All right. So, uh, for the win, last question here. Let me find it. Where did I put it? Here we go. All right. For the last one, Jay-Z, this is your chance. You go first. Okay. Name a type of building where it always seems to be cold. Always seems to be cold? Mm-hmm. Whew. Uh, also tough. Um, I think I've, I've got I've got an answer. I'm thinking if I can get a better one. 
I feel like I should buzz in. I should be allowed to buzz in. Yeah. Oh, well, before you buzz in, I'm going to go ahead and just say doctor's office. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, meat packing facility. Okay. I mean, a meat packing facility doesn't seem to be cold. It is cold. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, oh, I see where you're going with it. You're like being it's logical. Cold. Like, it's cold. Your job's <laughs> to work in a freezer. Guess what? It's going to seem cold. Yeah, it's going to be cold. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so Jay-Z, doctor's office was the number one answer. Oh, man. I All just right. got destroyed. And Alan, uh, what was it? A meat packing facility. Or, yeah. was not on the list at all. Dang it. <laughs> Nothing even remotely close, so you get a big fat zero for that. I now, think the I score lost. leading up to this was Allen in the lead, 57 to 45. But Jay-Z's think- number one there gives him a commanding lead because he just walked away with 44 points Ooh. on that one Ooh. for a final wow. score of 89 to 57. Jay-Z takes the win. Yeah, I couldn't right. even. I, I couldn't even caught up with a second. What was the second? I'm pretty sure that means that Jay Z has to buy the next round. Is that? Yeah, I think so. Is that what we were playing for? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Doctor's office number one forty four work was number two mm. at nineteen. Okay. Yeah, I'd have lost. I guess maybe I should have considered like your meat packing yeah, things work like work. <laughs> yeah, but all of these are somebody's work. A doctor's right? office is somebody's work. Yeah. The next one, classroom fourteen. Mm. And lastly, the DMV number four. <laughs> four okay. people said that. That's yep. amazing. Yeah, they spent a lot of time in the DMV. I, I have know, no I recollection. A long time, <laughs> right? These are the people with the DUIs. They, they're a lot more. <laughs> yeah, you know, a DMV is probably a U.S. thing, huh? It's a oh yeah. A direct, I don't even know what it stands for. Something motor vehicles, right? Department, Department. of motor vehicles. Yeah. Department of motor vehicles. Yeah. You go there for your license. Uh, I don't even know what else. Maybe passports. I don't know. Dri- uh, I have your seen tag. people. Yeah, it's usually yeah. licensed for people that are that were drinking and driving. I've seen I've seen that Wait. in there before. What? No, I swear. I promise you. That's why. That's why I made the drinking mm-hmm. reference. There was somebody in there who. <laughs> The last time I went, he was driven there by somebody. It was like his third time having to come get his license back. That's not scary. The, yeah, only, time, the only time I've ever gone is to get the drive to, to get the license plate, like to your tag renewals. Mine's not at the DMV. I always had to go to the courthouse for that. Oh wait, I guess that's the tag office. I'm thinking. Yeah, about. tag office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. DMV oh. was only renewing your license. Well, I guess like we don't have a DMV in this state then. Yeah, we do. No, we don't. Tank. We don't yeah. have a DMV. There's no Georgia DMV. Totally. What? I think it's actually dmv.ga.org or something. Georgia DMV. I'm going to the Googles. Yeah, we don't. It's the Department of Driver Services. Ah, driver services. It's different. Technicality. Oh. It's different. <laughs> it <laughs> <The> is. <name. laughs> it is different. Florida doesn't have one either. See? Florida does it. DMV yeah, is dude. like a like a California or New York thing, right? Like that's where. Mm. Yeah, here they call it the Florida Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles. That's way too much. Yeah, yeah, it's DMV. DMV. That's what it is. Wow. Uh, Excellent okay. song, by the way. All right, so so, so here, moving, I'm going to share. I'm going to share a little secret if I can. May please. I? Little yeah. little tip. Uh, you know, this is going to be like a, an early tip of the week. So I recently had to change my password, right? And it said that it required it to be eight characters long. So I picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. 
<laughs> That's a free tip right there. That's pretty good. I like it. Don't don't reuse that though. Somebody will know it now. <laughs> All right. So Oh wait, I get, said seven characters. I meant eight characters. Did I you said seven? eight characters. Okay. No, you said it. You said Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. Yeah. It added up. It added up. Oh, okay. <clears throat> All right. So getting it back into what Google was doing, they were shooting like Twitter. For, yeah, Twitter. Oh, yeah, Twitter. Twitter with Google. Sorry. Twitter with Google um services and whatnot. Um, so they were shooting for ease of use. Um, one of the big things was BigQuery was easy to use because it didn't require anybody to install anything. They could navigate it all through the web UI, right? Like they just log into their Google account and life was good. There were a few things that people had to onboard with. I, I mean, I know the three of us, when we first started with GCP, you have to learn about processes, resources, tagging, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and so they actually created some internal educational materials to get people sort of up to speed on that. And then after that, people were kind of up and running. So that's really nice. Now, they did look at various different things. And this goes back to the airflow thing. And this is why I wanted to, to at least note it earlier. So loading data into BigQuery, right? So we already said that they were using um, airflow, right? They looked at several things. So Google has a thing called Google Cloud Composer. And basically what that is, is a managed Airflow. So Airflow, being an Apache project, you can set it up and run it on your own VMs or whatever, right? Like that's on you. And that means you're managing infrastructure, which you're trying usually to get away from when you're doing Google or or cloud services in general. Cloud Composer was supposed to do that for you, but they couldn't use it because they needed to use um, what they referred to as domain restricted sharing. Um, and that basically meant that only if you're logged in as Twitter, can you see some of this stuff uh, and it didn't offer that. So they couldn't use it. They tried to use Google data transfer service, DTS. Um, it wasn't flexible enough to have data pipelines that had dependencies. So I think what they meant here is say you have a data pipeline that kicks off and runs something. Hey, when that thing's done, trigger another one to run. Hey, when that one's done, trigger another one, right? Um, or wait for certain things to be ready before you can do. So I think that's what they were talking about there. And it just, it wasn't flexible enough. And so that's why they ended up using Apache Airflow. And again, they had to set that thing up, um, get it running on their own, configure it all, all that kind of garbage. And then they were able to set up the services that they needed. Once they had data in BigQuery, and this is kind of interesting, this reminds me sort of of what we were talking about with the Uber blog back in the day, is once they got it into BigQuery, let's say that they needed to transform some of that data, well, they would basically create jobs that would use regular SQL queries to do those data transformations, right? So they load the data all in there, they need to polish it up, all right, run a job, have a SQL query, batch it out, and put it into another data set. Um, that's for simple stuff for the more complex things. Then they would go back to airflow again or use cloud composer with cloud data flow. Um, and if I remember right, data flow, we looked at that at one point and that allows you to do things like, um, it wasn't flink. What was underneath data flow? Was it using flink? That doesn't it, it, sound familiar to me. Didn't we look at that back in the day, Jay Z? Like yeah, that was I'm trying to remember. Um, it was one of the streaming ones. Um, it's not Flink. It's, it was Spark. But I thought there was like there was some Flink extension or something you could do. It, it might be. Yeah, I can't remember. But it basically allowed you to do like data streaming type things. Um, 
in a managed pipeline that you didn't really have to mess with, right? Like you write the code and it would run it for you. Um, man, it wasn't, it wasn't flank. I cannot read. There was, there was a, a language behind it. Oh, but you're not talking about data proc beam, Apache beam. That's what it was. You could write your things in Apache beam, put that into data flow, and then that would run and do your data streaming. Yeah. I'm I'm all confused now. (laughs) Data flow and data proc. Where are they thinking? Come on. Yeah, man. Naming's hard, right? Yeah. (laughs) Even, Even for infrastructure and services. Yeah. I'm not good at it either. I shouldn't be throwing stones. No, I've got some badly named variables all over the place. Um, all right, so the next one up, performance. Like, hey, if you're going to try and get a bunch of people to buy into your platform, it probably needs to work well. So this is a big one. And and I know that Outlaw and I, when we were first looking at this kind of stuff, you have to know the lines and the boundaries for the different technologies you're using. BigQuery is not for low latency, high throughput queries, or for low latency time series type analysis, meaning you can't put a petabyte of data in it, run a query, and expect it to come back in sub-second times. It's not how BigQuery works. It's not built for that. It is for being able to run SQL queries that can process over huge amounts of data. And we already said earlier, um, I think they were they ran so many queries over 100 petabytes of data, right? And their goal was they wanted their BigQuery queries to return results within one minute. So it's pretty interesting. They went about this by basically allowing their customer. Well, first, and these are kind of backwards, um, even, even in the paragraph up there that they had, they had their engineering team analyze 800 plus queries, each processing around a terabyte of data each to sort of see what the times were going to be when they came back. And then using that information, they actually allowed their internal customers to reserve a number of slots and in a slot in the GCP terms is it's a unit of computational capacity to execute a query. So here's the interesting thing. What they did is, when when you're running on cloud services, and I'd imagine they're all sort of the same in this regard. I mean, you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's spot pricing that says, hey, I just want to pay for what I use. And then there's fixed flat pricing, right? Like, hey, I'm going to pay for X number of slots every month, right? Like, um, just set me aside 100 slots and I'm going to pay a flat price for that as opposed to you know, hey, if I write a thousand queries and they hit these things, then it could use, you know, I don't know, 2000 slots or whatever. So they went with this fixed price thing and then they were able to see, hey, how many slots do I need to use for a particular query to get it to return in less than a minute? Right. And then they use that out and then different teams within the organization, within the Twitter organization could say, Hey, reserve me this number of slots, which would then get billed back to their department, but they could run their queries in sub minute times. And, and I'm pretty sure most, most services have that type of feature, right? The, the reserved, like I know AWS, um, Google cloud, Azure, all of them. If you reserve VMs, 
you pay a lower price for it because you're guaranteeing those cloud services that, hey, you're going to buy this much per month, right? Whereas if you're doing spot pricing, you might use it way less, but they're going to jack the price up on you because they want to get their money for that price for the time that you're using it. I thought the reserved pricing was way more expensive for a VM, like going back to your VM example. Mm, not usually. Because- if you say... If you say that you're going to reserve it for like a month, if you if you say that, and it's not even a month, I want to say with with um, a lot of those cloud services, if you say that you're going to you're oh, going to use it for a year, it's usually way cheaper. Yeah, you're right. I was the he- just looking at like the thing on the AWS blurb. EC2 reserved instances provide a significant discount discount up to seventy two percent compared to on demand pricing. Right. Because they know that if you're doing on-demand pricing, probably you're going to try and use an hour a day, right? Like I just, you know, throwing a number out there. Um, but if you're going to reserve something, you're going to have that thing for 24 hours. So, so you're kind of guaranteeing the money as opposed to it's almost, it's the inverse problem of what Twitter was trying to solve, right? Like they didn't want to do the spot pricing because they didn't want the fluctuation in the bill. So they wanted to do the reserve pricing so that they could at least plan for their budgets. And I think it's the reverse problem for AWS and Azure and all them, right? Like, Hey, if you'll tell me that you're going to use this, then at least I know I got money coming in, you know? So it's, it's kind of a push and pull in that regard. I was thinking though, like what a weird time we live in though, where like, you know, it's not enough to just be able to query the data. Instead, you got to think like, Hey, how many of these slots do you need for that query? And you're like a slot, like a what? You mean a CPU? No, a slot. I said what I meant. <laughs> That's right. Answer my question. Don't go making up questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And I'm sure that's, that's super complex, right? Because it's, it's, you don't know how much data you're querying necessarily and how many CPUs you're going to need and what RAM, because you don't want to have to think about that. Right. So they had to come up with a new term. So, yeah. All right. So data governance. Now this is interesting and this is really important, right? Like every company should care about this. Every developer should care about this. Um, Emphasis on the should. You don't have to, but you probably should. (laughs) You probably should. (laughs) Um, So Twitter was focused on discoverability, access control, security, and privacy. So data and discovery management, they want, this is really cool in my opinion. Um, They extended their DAO, their data access layer to work with both their on-prem and their GCP data. So that enabled users to use a single API to query all their sets of data, right? So, so just imagine, Hey, I want to um, pull a list of, you know, users that use this feature or whatever the count of users that use this feature. It can go across everything. Their on-prem Hadoop data sets and their GCP stuff. Like that's really cool. This goes back to our Presto drill conversation from earlier. Yep. Yep. Um, Next, I wonder to- like how I'm sorry, but I wonder like how complex that was though. Like it, was it just like, you know, you, you gave an example of like, you know, some users, for example, well, like, was that DAO limited to like the use case? Like, okay, you want users specifically? Yes. I know how to go and get that out of, uh, the, the data that we have in GCP or GCP. And I know how to go and get that out of the on-prem stuff. But if you wanted like more ad hoc kind of things, like maybe it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. I don't, I mean, 
it'd be interesting to know what their implementation behind the scenes are. Is that, like, if they had some like sort of GraphQL thing where people could just do some willy nilly query, like, that, that'd well, be insane. The the reason why I, the reason why I I question it though is because like as you were describing it, I immediately thought like, wait a minute, did they recreate Presto or Drill? Like, why would you why would you recreate something that you were a already using and b maybe this should have been a it already exists right well so so, that's why that's that was the like you know what immediately came to mind so check it out like i didn't put this in the notes but they actually and we'll get to it in a second in terms of just the bullet point but they have this thing where it would register data sets right um and I'm just going to read this bit here because maybe it'll make more sense. We use scheduled jobs to enumerate BigQuery data sets and register them with the data access layer. So that's you know part of it, um, which is Twitter's metadata store. Users will annotate data sets with privacy information and also specify retention. For scrubbing, we are evaluating the performance and cost of two things. Oh, well, that stuff didn't matter. So that registering thing, right? Like they had something that would automatically push those data sets down into the DAO in their metadata store. So maybe it was good enough to be able to live query these different things for you, assuming that they push the right metadata down there for their, their software. That sounds kind of awesome. I mean, like talk about like, uh, uh, what the service discoverability type of pattern, right? Like, now your your data is like saying, "Hey, I'm available for you to query, and I'm gonna like let you know." Isn't that, that awesome? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So um, the the other things they had to do, they had to control access to the data, which makes total sense. Um, they needed to use the domain restricted sharing so that only people that logged in with a Twitter account would have access to it. Right. Um, th- they needed to make sure that data didn't leak out somewhere. <clears throat> They used VPC service controls, so that basically prevented data exfiltration, and it also allowed them to lock down from what known IP ranges um, people could come in. So, <clears throat> excuse me, like if uh, if your company has a VPN, um, like uh, what Palo Alto is is a popular one, right? If you log in, you're probably on a known set of IP ranges, and so by doing that, you're only going to have access to that VPC. If you can get in there, um, the AAA authentication, authorization, and auditing authentication. They use GCP user accounts. Pretty simple, makes sense, right? Um, and that was for ad hoc queries for anything that was like a production load that maybe ran on a schedule or something like that. Then they use Google service accounts. Uh, pretty common in in a cloud type environment. Authorization. This was pretty interesting. Um, I don't think I'd ever thought about it because I haven't been that deep down into like BigQuery. Um, but each data set had an owner service account. And then every one of those data sets also had an individual reader group, right? So if you needed access to a particular data set, assuming it was something that was highly sensitive, then you'd have to be added into that particular reader group to even be able to see that data set. So it's kind of a nice way of making it to where you don't have to write a bunch of complex logic to be able to access those data sets. You're either in the group to read it or you're not. So that's pretty neat. And then auditing, this is them kind of eating their own dog food. So what they would do is anytime a big query query ran, they would take the stack driver logs from that execution, which had a bunch of detailed information in it, feed it back into a big query data set so they could analyze it later if they needed to. 
All right. Well, that's, that gets kind of circular. Yeah, a little bit. That's what I said. Eating the dog food, eating your, your own dog food. Your your stack driver queries in BigQuery become excessive, and then those logs make it back into BigQuery. <laughs> I would imagine they filter those at some point. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> oh, would make sense. Well, maybe not. I this mean, is what happens when you let me get in charge of engineering. Okay, right, listen. Yeah. <laughs> Query everything. Right. Do it all. Multiple times. Oh, man. Um. So ensuring proper handling of private data. So this was pretty interesting. So this is why they say they registered all the data sets. So if you had a new data set that was generated up there, it would auto register with the DAO. And then that way, any access to that data set was going through the DAO is my imagine is what I'd imagine is happening. They didn't call it out directly, but that would make sense. Um, they would annotate private data, right? So if, if you had a column in there, that was like a, a first name or something, and they would say, Hey, this is private. They used proper retention. This is a big one. If you've heard anything about GDPR and all that kind of stuff, like data privacy concerns and all that, uh, you have to be very explicit about how long you're going to keep this data around. And you're also supposed to say how you're going to use it. So I guess, okay, well, finish out this section. All right. So this last one here is making sure that they scrub and remove any data that a user deletes. So if you go in there and you delete something off your, your Twitter feed, or if you do deleted a tweet, then they needed to make sure that they also deleted up in their data storage. All right. So they had this, you know, the data governance, the triple A's authentication, authorization, auditing, you know, ensuring the handling of proper private data, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, like think of it as like a checklist. Like, can we, yep, we did that. 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 And yet that remember that 18 year old that hacked in and like said, send all your Bitcoin to here. Do you remember that hack? I do not. It it was, it was a, it was like a, when was this like last year? Uh, yeah, it was last year that the, the teen uh, Florida teen. So, you know, I mean, Jay Z, We're looking at you. We're looking at you. But yeah, yeah, he, he took, he took control of some well-known accounts and, and used them to solicit uh, Bitcoin. Oh yeah. Like celebrities, right? Yeah. So like one of them was Apple (laughs) and he said, Hey, we're giving back. We support Bitcoin and believe you should too. And if you send a Bitcoin, all Bitcoin sent to the address below will be uh, sent back doubled. You know, you never heard about this. no, but did he actually take over user accounts? Cause that's definitely different than hacking into their data warehouse. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. So, yeah. so, so the data warehouse, they locked down for like right. analytics, right. but like live account stuff, they're like, yeah. they don't care. Yeah, Privacy, don't like whatever. They probably use that snow white and the seven doors password. That's what, that's what got them. Wait, that's my guess. Don't give out my password, man. <laughs> right. I told you that in confidence. Yeah. My bad. All right, so now they actually do have different categories for their data sets, which this makes sense too. Um, These are all good things to sort of keep in mind when you're doing stuff like this, especially dealing with user private data. So highly sensitive data sets were available as needed with the least privilege. Um, And so this is the one where they had individual reader groups that were actively monitored. So if you needed access to some data that had sensitive data in it, you had to be added to a very specific group and they knew everything that you were doing there and they were watching it actively, right? Like it wasn't some passive query that was going to happen later. Um, 
the what, media- what would be the highly sensitive data sets there? What are we talking about here? What's what classifies as a highly sensitive data set? So they didn't say, but my guess is it would be things like first name, last name, right? Like if it's Taylor Swift, um, here she so it's not again. the contents of the message necessarily. Because I was I questioning, know. like, are we talking about the D, the like the you know the DMs that are like you know person to person, not the public tweets, right? It's public. Well, what about um? So uh, you know they probably have uh, information on like uh, I don't know. Um, Maybe it's for sorry. like the verified users, like their contacts or phone numbers or whatnot. Yeah, you know, maybe that would be considered highly sensitive. Well, I was thinking, um, yeah, I, I don't know, groups of people. Like if maybe they're working with the federal government on tracking down a cell of potential terrorists or something, then they don't want uh, you know people to figure out that they know who you know they're trying to hide the information that they know about those people because they're working with the government or something, you know, something like that. Are you speaking well, from experience, Jay Z? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just I got my tinfoil hat on, you know, so they can't see me, right? <laughs> it's good that you know that. Um, it, it will also keep in mind a lot of these sounded like they were event type data, right? So it might have been that you know Alan Underwood clicked the heart on this one, and so you know the message that I clicked the heart on, you know that I clicked the heart, and then and then you know that my name's Alan, so. The medium sensitivity ones, they anonymize things. So you still have user-ish type stuff in there, but it's hash. And they actually said it's a one-way hash. So so if you're trying to get things down to a user level, like you know how many individual people did this particular action, they could do it, but they couldn't actually see who it was, right? So anonymized that sounds similar to what i think uh, imdb did years ago with some or netflix did with some sort of contest or something um low sensitivity all regular user information is removed um so you won't be able to get like granular level type stuff and then public sensitivity anybody can get it so and then that was where that paragraph that i started reading earlier anytime a new data set is added then they have a scheduled task to go auto register these things with the dial Okay. All right. What's yeah, I, I got a question, but I, I want to reserve it until we get past this next section. Okay. I think this this last section here is on cost, and this is really interesting. So what they said is when they started moving up to BigQuery, remember, they already had Presto DB in play. And they said that the cost was roughly the same for querying Presto DB versus BigQuery. Now, the important thing here is it's for querying and presto db keep in mind they were managing all that infrastructure on prem bigquery is all managed for you right it's just a service you use they said that there were additional costs associated with storing data in gcs and bigquery and that was something that always kind of bugged me a little bit too is a lot of times you'd have to put the data in gcs and then when you ingest that into bigquery bigquery is also storing it again in its own engine. So you're kind of getting double hit with that. So there were additional costs on top of that. Um, but for a lot of people that want to use BigQuery, that's probably worth it because you're looking for that processing power that you're not going to be able to do without setting up a bunch of infrastructure yourself. Um, we already talked about they use uh, flat rate price, pricing so it didn't fluctuate. And there was one very interesting situation that I find extremely curious and I'd love to know more about it, but they just put a line in here. 
in some situations when they're querying tens of petabytes of data, it was more cost effective to use Presto DB than to use the GCS storage and, and BigQuery. Yeah, I wonder what what was the what was different about that, you know, why? Yeah, I I I tr- the only thing I can think is that um what they call it slot, that slot cost was probably crazy for having to pour through petabytes of data. That's like it probably just took so long and used up so many of those storage slot or those slot cost units that it just had to be crazy. Whereas you sort of have a fixed cost of Presto if you're managing a cluster on-prem, right? That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Yeah. And all of this was in relation to moving an exabyte of data. This was what started it. Yeah, this is, this is the why and where they ended up with, an exabyte of data being moved into Google cloud. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? And this is all for internal querying purposes. How many pounds of hard drive would that be? <laughs> oh my God, man. Right. I'm kind of curious, like, if they shipped hard drives with that much data, like how much would that be? What would the shipping cost be? Yeah. Well, I'm just wondering like, is that like a dump truck worth of hard drives? Is it, um, trucks, you know, is it airplanes worth? Like, I, I don't know. I was curious. I don't know if there's easier to figure it out to, uh, to brain did and figure it out. All right. So hold on. How many, it, I just, I just Googled this because you know, that's what you do. How many terabytes are in an exabyte? There are 1 million terabytes in an exabyte. So if we assume I mean, I'd say most data centers aren't running like um, 14 terabyte drives because they're too expensive, right? They want something cheaper. So let's say that out of their 1 million, divided by what, 8 terabytes probably common? I was thinking 5. All right, well, I did 8. That's 125,000 drives. Yeah. (laughs) How many drives fit in a garbage truck? So... Who doesn't know? So if we were to come at this from a different direction, then, because there's one way of doing this where like each, like you literally, like the drives aren't active. They're just literally packaged up and boxed and sent. Right. And that's going to be, you you know, you're going to have a higher compression rate of drives per. So like really now we're talking about like, well, what's the, you know, how, how effective am I going to ship those drives? Am I going to put them in like a you know consumer grade where there's a lot of packaging material around them? Or am I going to like squeeze some of that in closer, you know, to, to get that tighter? Um, so now you like, now you're just like, well, what's the size of the drive period? And also like we're assuming hard drives and not, you know, SSDs because of the density of, you know, how much more storage you can get, yeah. in a spinning hard drive versus SSD, but the SSDs are going to be lighter. And, you know, those are things are, t- you can get those super tiny now, but <clears throat> coming at it from a different approach, if you were to look at a comparison of like the AWS snow, snowmobile service where AWS drives a truck to your location, when you need to store, like, you know, you need to move exabytes of data into AWS and you want to, use their system to do it fast. It's a hundred petabytes per truck. Okay. There you go. So, right. but that's a, that's a live working truck though. Yeah. 
Like, Golly. you got but a lot is that of hardware. Like a forty foot, forty foot tractor trailer truck. That's got to be what it is, right? I don't know. That was. It's a forty five. Yeah, forty five foot. It's a forty five foot container. Wow. Yeah. Good lord, man. All right, so there's a thousand petabytes in uh, one exabyte. <laughs> so, right? And how many petabytes so, did you say was in that truck? A hundred. So it's oh. ten big trucks. Man, that's crazy. Assuming that you wanted the data like actually like pluggable Shit. and ready, right? You yeah, know. yeah. That's so. that's insane, man. Yeah. yeah, ten big. That's crazy. Also crazy that such a service exists. Like, how many times? Like, how many customers does Amazon have to where that's actually a need? Right? right? That they're like, yeah, no, we do, we do this a lot. Uh, you know, hey, yeah, we here's your here's your punch card, and uh, you yeah. know. Tenth one's free. <laughs> it is a forty-five foot truck, by the way. So it's ten, like you know, tractor trailers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, yeah. that's that's Hard insane. Crazy. Yep, eight foot wide, nine point uh, six foot tall, forty-five foot long, cube or you know, square. <laughs> so you said eight feet wide times nine point five tall. Uh oh, we're going to calculate some volume times forty-five feet. That's thirty three thousand four hundred twenty square feet of hard uh, of of space available for these. I'm sure it's not pra- packed all the way to the brim, but yeah, that's that's a lot of space. Is it worth it? I imagine I imagine that that forty five foot container is basically like a moving data center. Really. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, bunch of servers, a bunch of hard drives. They're like, hey, we we uh, we need some backup power for our generators, but otherwise, uh, where's the where's your Wi Fi? <laughs> yeah could you give me the guest password please snow white and the seven dwarfs that's right hey so somebody has some fun questions in here oh yeah so uh you know elon musk recently uh ended up buying twitter that was a whole big fiasco i'm not gonna get into the details of that yeah you're gonna have to google it i didn't Um, hear about that yeah it's been been kind of a thing but uh one of the things that uh, happened is there were a ton of layoffs right the company had like seven thousand. Uh, employees i think um and they what they got rid of like half and uh, so there was a lot of discussion on twitter and a lot of other places saying oh my gosh how does twitter have so many employees like i could write it in a weekend and so i was curious like uh you know (laughs) obviously we just spent a lot of time talking about a lot of the other things that twitter uh does besides just like a simple content management system like we talked about kind of pulling data out of a database but I just thought it might be fun to kind of bring up and say, like, do you, uh, you could build Twitter in a weekend? Anybody that can build Twitter in a weekend, I say, just go for it. What do you wait? What's holding you back then? Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. You've had years to do it. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think it's ridiculous. Like, obviously, uh, this is something that happens a lot. I think developers will often kind of like take a service and, and kind of like boil it down to like, one simple part of the use case and then think that that's all there is. I remember when Dropbox came out, there were a lot of people being like, I could have done this with, uh, you know, a NAS and uh, R-Sync and, you know, for free. And so there's all these people kind of putting out instructions on how to replace Dropbox. But somehow Dropbox is a hugely successful company that even has like several companies that spawn to compete with it. They're all doing very well. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of just kind of funny to me that uh, people kind of talk about it. Um, well, yeah, just I, I think anytime you're thinking that you could just build X in a weekend because all you think it is is, you know, what you see or like your face of it. Like you don't think about the financials, the billing, the advertisements, the machine learning, like all these things that are really necessary to making that thing successful. 
you know, it's not just the way you primarily interact with it. I mean, dude, even, even the simple, let's take the simple use case of us three people here being on a platform and then being able to follow each other and tweet and seeing each other's stuff. That alone would take some time, especially because it's all live streaming. You go up there and things are constantly popping up new, fresh everywhere. Like just that alone is already more than a weekend's worth of work, right? Not even to take into account authentication, authorization, all that kind of garbage. And then you start building on top of it. Hey, once you get past um a few hundred users, your problems just got way different, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it would take me a weekend just to set up uh, my DevOps pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. So, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. But uh, it did remind me of a tweet that I just saw uh, a couple days ago from David Whitney, who's an interesting uh, person on Twitter that you should follow in dev space. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase here because they used a naughty word. It says, uh, the more I think about it, the 10x developer trope is uh, less rock star and more crappy <laughs> cover bands uh, than any of those people would like to admit. And I think it's a really good point. It's like a lot of times when people think or people talk about, you know, these kind of great accomplishments or what they could do in a weekend, you're thinking about this like smoke and mirrors kind of demo, basically standing up something that's made out of, you know, balsa wood and paper that just is totally fragile and unmaintainable and is just not nearly as robust and you know significant as the real thing. And so I just, all the talk on Twitter of people, you know, talking about building Twitter in a weekend are usually just thinking about a UI and a simple database. And it's just not the same thing. I, you know, it's funny, even that. So you had mentioned, or we mentioned on the last episode, um, there's there's some thing that people are installing or, or using that's like a Twitter replacement type thing. What was it? Mastodon. Oh, Mastodon. Yeah. Mastodon. Even just setting something like that up can take a day, right? Let alone programming the thing. It, like So th- that's where I think it's so crazy that developers, especially experienced developers, will go out there and make a statement like that. Like, oh, I could totally make this on a weekend. We are a yeah. confident bunch that are <laughs> also uh, opinionated and uh, yep, yeah, yep. a little sure of ourselves. A little and bit. That's how it always starts. So we're like, I could do that in a weekend and then we'll start. And then, you know, we get lost. We'll go down some rabbit hole of authentication. You know, this is the one that we always tease Alan about. We'll fall down some rabbit hole of authentication and then come up for air like 18 days later. And like, wait, the weekend's over. Yeah, yeah, what was I doing? I don't even remember anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's so easy to get hit a snag. So it's just ridiculous that, and I think it's dismissive of all the hard work that's gone into it. But I mean, that's a side note. Um, so do you guys want to create a Twitter? You want to do it? I think we can do it the do weekend. It. Do it. I don't. I can't <laughs> set up. Like a we got it. Yeah. Sounds like we already got the architecture right here. That's right. I think individually we couldn't do it, but the three of us together yeah. we could build yeah. Twitter in a weekend. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Long weekend. Yeah. Uh, so, and this was um, just another kind of a little bit of, uh, I don't know, kind of insight into what's going on there. Uh, another thing that was tweeted out, and this one was actually tweeted by Elon, uh, who mentioned that, he, uh, I'm going to paraphrase another tweet here, that he'd like to apologize for Twitter being super slow in many countries because the app is doing more than a thousand poorly batched RPCs just to render a home timeline, which, you know, like that that's what he tweeted and there's there's been some talk on you know whether or not that's true or you know like how accurate that statement is and who knows but i will say that i am not surprised to hear that there are a whole lot of calls being made to external services and so if you tell me that the home timeline is making you know potentially a thousand calls to render 
like it, I believe it, <laughs> you know, it's like it, I, I'm not like, so, you know, disgustingly shocked by it. Like I could see that sort of thing kind of happening. If you take the request and you think about all the various things that kind of spin off of it, like we talked about uh, just the analytics side of it, like just knowing that someone refreshed the timeline and all the various services that kind of, you know, end up going through uh, the pipelines and until they end up in their final you know data stores uh it can be a just a ton of data moving around and so uh you know I, while i don't know that it's necessarily a thousand i'm not surprised to hear that it's a whole bunch yeah and we'll have links to that in the show notes those things are referenced there's some interesting comments in yeah. this thread <laughs> i will say that so um yeah yeah, it's juicy. So, you know, uh, if you want, uh, you know, a, a juicy read here, uh, the one of the developers that worked on it responded to uh, the claims Ian uh, made. That person's since been fired. <laughs> but there's been a, a whole lot of interesting stuff. So I'll, I'll actually have a link to a news bite, uh, like a, a news article about the whole thing that's got links to all the various tweets and kind of covers the drama. Mm. There's been a lot of drama. Lately. A little bit of drama. Yeah, I've been avoiding Twitter, but it, I do love the technological side of it because it is seriously one of the most insane engineering things that exists. I mean, the amount of throughput those people have. Yeah. And, you know, it's hugely influential, too. Just uh, like if you think about it, like when's the last time you uh, – saw a bus or a truck or something and had the little blue bird on it. every right. commercial, you know, you see a, a commercial for aspirin and it's got the little like follow us on Twitter. It's, it really is a big part of like how people communicate and just, uh, you know, it's, it's been a big part of kind of modern culture. I mean, time. the, the term hashtag only exists because of Twitter, right? Like it, yeah. it's, it's insane. It's definitely like a fascinating set of problems that they created for themselves, right? Cause like you said, this didn't exist before, but um, yeah, like trying to deal with these things in real time and you know, yeah, it's insane. Yeah. I was just thinking though, like when you, you mentioned the bus example, I didn't know where you were going. That I was like, man, when was the last time I saw a bus? I think it was being driven by Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves and <laughs> didn't, nobody wanted to be on that bus. So maybe that's where he's going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so more. All right. Well, we'll we'll have a, a bunch of links in the uh, resources we like section for this uh, this episode. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right, and here I uh, I've got to put uh, a tip about uh, Kubernetes. So you know I, I love K9's command line interface that I use for uh, just doing all sorts of Kubernetes stuff all the time. Love it. It's great. Uh, because of that and because of how much I love it, how like comfortable I am with that tool, like I've really not looked at other ways of kind of interacting with Kubernetes until uh, fairly recently when uh, someone convinced me to, to install the uh, VS Code plugin for Kubernetes, which I just didn't think I really needed. But uh, I really like it, it turns out. So uh, it kind of gives you like a, almost like a directory kind of browsing, uh, just kind of layout in the left nav for uh, finding your resources and nav- navigating your context and um, things like that. It's just, just kind of nice. Uh, and of course, it's also really nice to be able to like right click on a, a pod or something and uh, attach to it, which I'm sure, you know, I'm sure everyone here at, at least, uh, I don't know if you I don't know about listeners, but uh, the three of us have definitely done various things with like attaching VS code to a container or to a remote server or uh, done their live sharing type features. Like it's basically you can do stuff like that with it, where you can kind of connect to a, a 
uh, server and then open up VS Code. And as it says, if you've you know working on that machine and it, you can open a terminal in it, you can do all sorts of cool stuff locally, which is just really convenient. And so uh, I am kind of a little bummed that I put off using it so long because it has been really handy and has been a nice complement to uh, having canines for kind of shooting in, looking at logs, shelling in, that sort of stuff. So it's nice to have uh, more options, and I'm, I'm glad to have it. One thing I did want to mention, though, is like, you have to be careful. Uh, one thing I really like about canines is it does not change your global context when you change context in canines. Uh, so, for example, like I, I work in several different contests uh, throughout the day. And uh, I keep my local contest always set to just my local, you know, instance, my, my local cluster. Uh, and so if I ever need to run a script or anything, I always have to pass, you know, the context that I want. And if I make a mistake and don't pass the context, or I don't pass a namespace. It just affects my local, which is great. But uh, in, v- in Kubernetes plugin, Visual Studio Code, it's easy to kind of double click something and not realize that you've changed your, uh, your your local context to a different namespace or something. So you just have to be careful because I like to keep that always set to something that can't damage too badly. Yeah, that's scary. I wonder why they didn't just on all the things that they're running behind the scenes, did they not just pass the the context with the command? That kind of stinks. But yeah, yeah. I think most people running QCuddle commands are used to kind of dealing with that problem. So you know, it doesn't bother me too much. It's just something I've gotten to kind of take it for, for granted because I just right. you know always use canines. Yeah, Visual Studio Code is just an amazing tool. It's so good. <laughs> it really is. So uh, for my tip of the week. You know, as you were speaking, it reminded me we've talked about iTerm two as a favorite um, uh, terminal replacement. You know, on Mac OS, and uh, I had talked about it before, so it's been mentioned before in a couple episodes, episode one forty seven and one sixty one. So if you're not using it, um, you need to go back and listen to those episodes. I don't know why. Why aren't you using it yet? But um, in one of the episodes, I want to say it was the 161 episode, uh, double checking. Yep, it was 161. Um, I had mentioned the using like split, doing the split windows, right? To like, and like my preference is to split the windows uh, vertically. So you can just uh, command D and it'll split it out. And you can like have multiples of these, right? And so as you were describing uh, your, your, uh, Kubernetes environment with Visual Studio Code. I was like, oh yeah, you know what? Like dawned on me this week. Like my favorite view right now has been, um, you know. So we have we, we've talked about like these widescreen monitors that we have. You know, we've grown to love them, right? Because you can have you know a lot of documents open and see things at one time. Well, for my Kubernetes uh, workflow, my favorite pattern has been to have iTerminal, but split three times. So I have three windows, my leftmost window, cause we love scaffold. So my leftmost window I'm using for scaffolding my rightmost window I'm using for canines. And then my middle one is like all of the, you know, command ad hoc commands that I'm, I want to type in, you know, randomly in there. So yeah, I just wanted to like give another, uh, shout out to, uh, iTerm or I term two specifically, I guess. But um, yeah, cause that it just makes life so easy. And that wasn't even the tip of the week that I planned to, to discuss. So uh, that's just a freebie right there. So you got two out of me, you got two freebies. Uh, the, the first one was a good password, right? I think that was the first one. And then, and then yeah. I term two. 
All right. So my real tip of the week though was, uh, so I learned of this today and I don't know if you guys have, but I, I got to get more into this, uh, cause this looks super promising, but, uh, there is now a Kafka cuddle command line so that you can do all your, you know, Kafka manage management using this tool. And the beauty of it is if for those they are like, wait a minute, but that, there's already like, you know, a bunch of scripts that Kafka comes included. You know, you just go into your bin folder of your broker, for example, or your, your connect or whatever. And, you know, there's a Kafka topics shell script. That's like super cryptic. And you gotta like, do I provide the bootstrap server or do I provide the zookeeper? Wait, when does it matter? Do I need both? Do I, Wait, what? With the Kafka cuddle command, you don't need to do any of that. And like, it's got just things that make sense, like com- verbs that make sense of what you want to do, right? It's, so it's very uh, Kubernetes-like in that regard in, in from a CLI. So I saw this today and was just like uh, mesmerized by it. I was like, oh, just... That looks awesome. And so uh, I wanted to share that. That's most excellent. Yeah. Man, I was actually looking for for something that Dave Follett had mentioned. So um I think on the previous episode, uh there was there was something about seeing the process that actually had a handle on a file. Right. And he had mentioned something. He actually sent a correction. I think uh what he had told us wasn't exactly right and I hadn't double checked it, but he sent me something. So I can't find it. If I can, I'll get it in the show notes for this so that it'll be down there in the tips. Um so where he was on the proc, proc, uh, catting the proc yeah. process ID. Yeah, it was something a little bit different. He said that it wasn't actually one hundred percent spot on what he had said before. Um but we'll give him a pass because he has given us a lot of good tips. So um, I'll try and get that in there. Also, a, a note on the previous shopping episode. I talked about the Roku Streaming Stick 4K Plus, right? And Outlaw and I got into a little conversation about, well, does it actually support Atmos? So it's really weird on their website. It definitely does not show that it supports Dolby Atmos, right? Like it, it says like Dolby HD Plus or something. I can't remember. Um so I actually did a test on my soundbar that has Atmos and all kinds of other stuff. And I tried content that was both Atmos, um, stereo, um, just DTS surround and all of them. And every single one of them coming through the Roku registered properly on the soundbar. So if it was Atmos, it showed Atmos on the soundbar. If it was stereo, it showed stereo. So it's at least passing it through. Um, I think, and what I was saying last time is, I don't think it decodes Atmos through the Roku, but it'll pass the signal through. So I believe that's what's going on. I haven't looked it up, but I did see that it would show up properly in both places. Well, that's the thing that was so confusing to me. Like I, I went back and looked at it too, out of curiosity, because they had some like weird wording for it. I don't remember it now off the top of my head, but... Um, cause, and you mentioned it just again about the decoding and I'm like, yeah, none of them are decoding it. That's what the, that's what your receiver is doing because the decoding is actually deciding like, oh, this is supposed to go to that channel and that's supposed to go to that channel. You know, like that's the decoding, right? Well, sort of, so, in that, man, this is where things get really confusing. So, um, well, confusing is what we do here. 
Right. Well, I mean, for years, like with receivers, one of the reasons you would upgrade your AVR at home is because it had more decoding um, or more uh, codecs that it could handle, right? Like DTS, DTH, DTS, HD, whatever. And so if a signal got passed to it and, and it could read that signal as DTS, HD, and it supported it, then it would actually play it in that. If it couldn't, then it would basically fall back to some standard AC3 well, type thing or whatever, yeah, right? Like the stream, the, the stream might have like here's the here's the two or three or four right. different things that it's available in. It's available in in Atmos. It's available in uh, you know five point one. It's available in stereo, and so yeah, it's going to try uh, to to you know it's like a pro- protocol agreement, like a handshake, you know, till. Uh, TLS handshake agreement. It's going to try to like find the one, the best one, right? And then it'll like successfully go down the list. And that's why it confused me when you were talking about the decoding because I'm like, well, they're all passing through, right? Like even like a Apple TV is passing it through. So yeah, that's what's interesting is I think what the Roku stick will do is it can actually decode things to DTS HD plus or whatever the things that it supports. But it will pass along the original stream information. So if your receiver can handle Atmos, then it'll do it. But it will not decode Atmos and try and send any information to the TV or or receiver or whatever saying do this. So I just wanted to say that. So if you do have something that's capable of doing Atmos or whatever, that Roku will actually pass it along and it will get picked up from it. So again, for like when it was on sale and probably during Black Friday, it's going to be like 30 bucks or 25 bucks, $25, man. It's a stupid good deal on a streaming thing. So, um, at any rate, all right. So my, my tip of the week. So I got this from, I think that same meeting, the outlook got the other thing from today, um, which was really good. Kafka, I think by default, and I may be wrong, I should have looked it up before I actually even said this, but I want to say the message size is supposed to be one megabyte. Does that sound right? I think I see the one or two. I think that is right. Yes. Yeah. So it, here's where I'm going with this. I'll look tip. it up. All right. Thank you. Um, so yes, what that megabyte. means is, okay, one megabyte. So by default, you can send messages up to one megabyte in size to Kafka and it'll write it. <clears throat> if you send something bigger, it'll basically blow up and it won't write it because it's like, Hey, I can't do it. It's not going to truncate it. It's just not going to write the record. Um, and we ran into situations where we actually needed more than that, or we thought we did. And there's an interesting thing you can do. So you have in Kafka producers and consumers. Producers are the things that are writing things to Kafka. Consumers are things that are basically, you know, listening to and getting messages from Kafka. In your producer, you have the ability to turn on compression, actually on a message by message basis, if you want to. Um, But the interesting thing is they have several different types, and I've got a link here. You can do no compression, which I think is default. You can do gzip, snappy, or LZ4 compression. So if you had a message that was too large, it was greater than one megabyte, let's say it was a JSON blob, you could likely use some gzip or snappy compression to squeeze that thing down before you even send it to Kafka, and then you might be fine. So you may not need to increase the size of your default messages that Kafka can handle because there are some downsides to doing that, right? Like Kafka is supposed to be really fast. And if you increase, increase the actual size of the messages, it's writing longer per thing that it's doing potentially. So this might be a really good solution for you. 
Not only that, but keep in mind that the way you size a Kafka cluster is based on the amount of bandwidth that you expect to go through. So if you're increasing the size of your message, then you're likely going to impact the size of your cluster. Yeah, you're rethinking or what you need to have, you know, and and cluster Kafka cluster sizing can be a pain in the butt because, you know, if you decide like, oh, we have five brokers today and then tomorrow you decide, you know what, we need seven. Mm-hmm. to take advantage of those extra two brokers now um, becomes a hassle. Uh, it becomes tedious to like rekey messages to spread things out across that because it's deterministically, de- you know, deciding where that, um, where the key belongs for that piece of data. And if you are changing the infrastructure around, then, you know, yeah. you got to rekey things. So that's why like one of the recommendations related to sizing is, um, uh, you know, that you size the cluster t- to last for two years and then, you know, come back at it after that. Although there is another thing too. So, okay, here's your third freebie from me. No, wait, wait, before you go oh, into that one, oh, real gosh. quick, one other thing just to finish this up. So the interesting thing about when you write these compressed messages, the compression information is stored with the message. So when it's written to Kafka, Kafka gets this, this crushed up compressed thing. It just writes it. Whatever consumes it, we'll see the metadata about what compression technology was used. And so it decompresses it at the consumer level. So it can actually truly be on a message by message basis. So it's, it's really, really cool how they bake this in. All right, go ahead. Tip three. So, so there's another one uh, that I haven't had a chance to like dig into in great detail yet, but it's been on my radar now for, for quite a minute. But um, I think it was created by LinkedIn, but it's called cruise control. And it's for Kafka to help manage large Kafka clusters at scale. And so, um, you know, some of the things that I was describing, like might be like, there might be somebody who's listening like, Oh no, that's old advice. Like now with cruise control, you know, you can easily add and remove brokers, you know, cause that's literally like listed as one of the things that you could do is rebalance the cluster easily using cruise control and things like that. So I haven't had a chance to dig into it. So that's one of the things I've been kind of curious is like when they say that it'll do it. Okay. But like how quickly is it? Because I remember from past experiences trying to like rekey messages in a topic because you want to like change partitions or something, right? Like, you know, based on the amount of data I had at the time, which was a large data set, but in, you know, just done for like testing purposes. Um, you know, and it was like an eight hour ordeal to, to redo an, it. It was not an exabyte. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like, um, that's why I'm kind of curious to see like, okay, well, you know, what are some of what, what is all of this doing? So I don't know. Um, I'll put that out there. Uh, you know, it'll be in, in the, um, in the links and, you know, maybe we'll all learn something new. That's amazing. And some cool technology. So, you know, whatever. All right. Well, uh, hey, let me ask you this. If you watch an Apple store get robbed, are you an eyewitness? <laughs> you are. Okay. Just asking for a friend. I like it. Yeah. One last question. How do you fix a broken pumpkin? Smashing is all thing with mine. I don't know. Squash? It's got to be something about squash. Oh, yeah. yeah good. A pumpkin patch. Uh-huh. Oh, geez. that's even better. Excellent. Wow. Yeah, so really thank you, uh, Mike RG for those. 
Excellent. Uh, yep. There's, there's, and now we head into Jay-Z's favorite portion of the show. Goodbye. It's the end of the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, wherever you like to find your podcasts, and uh, be sure to leave us a review. You know, I know Jay-Z said he was going to give you a freebie, uh, you know, that if you, you gave us a four, we'd treat it as a five. But I don't know. I mean, I call shenanigans on that. Like, you want to give us the five, right? Like, I mean, am I wrong? Yeah, the only way I'm that wrong. four happens is if you accidentally slipped and clicked the button when you're hovering over the four. That's just the only thing that makes sense. All right. So I think you hey. clicked the four because you're still upset because you were trying to buy your Taylor Swift tickets and you <laughs> didn't get them in time and you're upset and you're taking that anger out on us. And I don't think that's a good look on you. Don't yeah, take your aggression fair. out on us. That's not fair to us. We yeah, didn't that's do not it. Right. It's not that's our totally. fault that Jay Z bought all the Taylor Swift tickets. What if you only liked eighty percent of the show? Ah, why, Jay Z? Why? That's because you didn't listen to the other 20%. I mean, that's, that's, that's it's not, not our fault you tuned out, right? That's right. <laughs> Come on, hook us up. <laughs> All right. So, hey, while you're up there at CodyBlocks.net, make sure you check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to Joe. <laughs> <Woo. laughs> <laughs> I did I'm not in, see in, that coming. Yeah, I'm in oh, slack. That was I'm great. Slack. My bad. Uh, no, did you? <laughs> hey, it's Take your it. turn, Joe. Uh, oh, hey, uh, yeah, and um, make sure to follow us on uh, Twitter while it still exists at CodingBox or head over to CodingBox.net. I got dark. Uh, social links to the top of the page. <laughs> the times they are changing. Who knows? 